Thank you very much. It says biggest experiment. That's all. No other claim. Biggest. Um, before I begin, where's Sarah Kendrew? Hello. Sorry. <laughs> one of those Twitter things. Just nice one to say hello. Um, right. <laughs> sorry about that. Um, right. Thank you very much for inviting me um, to do this. Um, this is only my second Skeptics in the pub talk. The first one was in Manchester, which is where I'm from, and I didn't have a book to sell then. So, <laughs> but I was essentially the same talk, I have to say. Um, the book is, is really... Um, I didn't know how to describe it, but somehow the, the, the publishers bought it anyway. Um, and the title came along later as well. But really, it's a memoir of, of three or four very exciting years in physics... <laughs> Um, that I was part of and privileged to be part of. Um, and it's not just about the physics. So I, I think the, the book, um, it's a personal point of view. It's not a definitive account. It, it's basically what was going on in my head at that time, translated as possibly and made as, re- as much as possible and made as readable as possible as I can. The, uh, but because it's the, what went on in the mind of a physicist, of course, there's a hell of a lot of physics in there. So it does actually... The point is, if, if you read it, you will kind of, it kind of it's supposed to demystify both what the physics is, because uh, physics is, is not mysterious. It is very wonderful. Um, it's very exciting. Well, I mean, you can choose to see it as mysterious, but it's it's um, it's not as as distant and other other as it is. And one of the things I try and do, I write a blog for the Guardian, and one of the things I try and do in that blog is connect. Um, the wild fringes of physics knowledge, which it kind of frustrates me that people see physics in the media and it's um, string theory and black holes and the Higgs boson and things. And they actually people don't understand how much physics is going on in the everyday life and, and really don't even get Newton's laws. I mean, I don't, you know, if you're an education secretary, you think someone else wrote them. So they, they, uh, that bothers me a little. Um, and I, not not in a bad way, but I just, just do like to connect the fact that, this, that physics is actually a bunch of it's an empirical subject that's built up from from repeatable experiment, everyday life, and it gets us to some pretty wonderful places anyway. So there's no need to make it more mystical than it is. And the other thing is, I remembered I did my degree here. Actually, I did both my degrees here. Um, <laughs> yeah, I have a D Phil. I keep forgetting. Um, the the, the, um, the I remember at the end of my um, undergraduate degree that I, uh, I, did st- I was thinking about doing research and I started not a, ab- no clue what research... See, I would have sworn then if you weren't recording it. I had no clue um, what it meant to do a research degree. I had no idea what it... I, I wanted to do it. I knew about research was discovering new knowledge about the universe and then it was, it was gonna, something I was very interested in. But I had no idea that what if you turn up in the morning and clock on, what do you do? And the answer was, well, you don't really clock on and you certainly never clock off. But they, they, I, I felt it was worth just ex- explore, demystifying a little bit what these weird guys at CERN are doing or these weird people who do research in general are doing. Um, so that's the idea, right? I've, I've rambled a little bit of, in, about what the book is about, but the book is a little rambly like that. It does actually reproduce pretty much what was going on in my head. Too much of it was written in airline lounges, unfortunately. Um, and the reason it was written in airline lounges is because of this. This is the, the Large Hadron Collider at CERN, which is where I, I work. It's where I do my research, even though most of the time at the moment I spend in London. When we switched this machine on, um, this was a view I got at least twice a week, assuming the weather was okay. 
um, which is you see the airport, Geneva Airport here. But on the back there all day you've got Mont Blanc and then Lake Geneva and um, the uh, um, Geneva Airport in the middle of Geneva Town. This is the main lab as, uh, here. The, uh, the dashed white line is the Swiss-French border, and the yellow line, which of course is not actually painted on the French fields, <laughs> is uh, they wouldn't let us, you know, it would have been good. You know, is, is the path of the Large Hadron Collider, which is a 27-kilometer-long tunnel full, filled mostly with superconducting magnets to bend the beam. And that's an example of um, connecting basic physics to, um, to what we're doing. Because the thing that limits our energy is how much you can bend the beam, which is the same thing, of course, that limits how fast you can turn a corner in a car. Because you, it's, it's the fact that you need... Newton's law says you will carry, things will carry on with the same momentum in a straight line well, unless acted on by a force. And we, um, we want to bend these beams around and make them collide, and they're the, most, they're the highest momentum things we've ever had in a lab. So the, the, the limiting factor is what force can you apply to bend them and make them go around a circle. That's also why, and, and if in a car, you, know, you have to get the, uh, the centripetal force to bend the cars to come from the friction between the tyres and the road. So if you go too fast, you'll skid and hit something. We really don't want our beams to skid and hit anything, so we have to work very hard to make them bend round. And that's also why it's so big, by the way. That's why you can't do it on, in, in Oxford. We can't do it. Why, why there's only one of these in the world? Because you have to build a big one because the, the cur you want the most gentle curvature you can get. So the more gentle the curvature, the more powerful your magnets, the higher, higher energy you can go. And what we've got is the biggest, most gentle curvature in the world and the most powerful magnets in the world, and that's why we've got the highest energy beam in the world. Actually pumping the energy in, it's just a radio frequency cavity. It's not the big problem. The big problem is making it come around and get another kick and then eventually collide. Um, the other thing, it's not, it's, you're only an hour from London, so it's worth saying 27 kilometres is the, exactly the same length as a circle line. Well, exactly within a kilometre, you know. And, and, um, and it's the right colour. <laughs> and it's a lot faster and a lot more collisions. So take your pick. <laughs> right, so before I go into the science, I guess it's worth talking a little bit about CERN, because it's quite wonderful, to be honest. I mean, as it's flaws, you don't, don't get me on that. Get me on those after. Um, but it was founded in 60 years ago. They're having a big party in September, October to celebrate 60 years of, the, of CERN. Um, it was founded kind of in the aftermath of the, well, within a decade of the end of the Second World War. Europe and European science were in a mess. A lot of the great scientists, I mean, Germany was a massive powerhouse of European science and, of course, had been completely wiped out. Um, most of them been driven to the US. Lots of them have been killed and the rest had gone east, pretty much. Um, and the same goes for a lot of the rest of Europe. So it was set up explicitly before the EU or anything, completely independent of that. It's part of all these European institutions being set up, but as an independent one, to do science in a non-military, non-curiosity-led um, way, not even supposed to be economically beneficial, just to put Europe back on the map in terms of science. Um, and it was, you know, for a long time, for the first two decades, it's a bit like Alex Ferguson. It kind of did nothing much for the first decade. And then, and I go, that's a mank joke. But sorry about that. Um, not, how many United fans in? Yeah. Ooh, ooh. That's all right. That's all right. That's... <laughs> all right, sorry. Um, they... 
Sorry about that. I don't know where that came from, really. I'll use that Ferguson thing again, though. Um, it actually, to be honest, it only became a leading European lab in the 70s when it discovered weak neutral currents, which UCL was actually part of, my home institute, uh, the only UK institute that was part of it at that point. Um, and uh, really became a world-leading lab in the mid-80s when they discovered the W and the Z boson there. And now it's basically where the world comes to do it. Before I move on to that, just to say it, it does... So the UK was a founder member. We've been paying something like £90 million a year, so um, £2 per taxpayer-ish per year, um, to be a member of it from the beginning. We, we govern it. We're, we're, we help govern it. I'm going, actually, I'm, I'm sitting on CERN Council, so I go there next year, so I'm, uh, next week, sorry, <laughs> to... to um, to, as part of the governing thing it's the, the, the way you pay for it is divided up by GDP and stuff um, and it has an internationally agreed budget and it overlaps quite heavily with the European Union so obviously Switzerland and Norway are in it but not in the EU and Ireland is not in CERN but is in the EU but pretty much it, it works quite well with the EU and the European research area um, I think uh, we should be quite proud of the fact that we have such a centre of excellence in Europe I, I'm not getting too political am I here? No one mentioned UKIP, did they? Good. Um, the, 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 um, we, these are the people who come to um, Europe to do their science at CERN. So every country that's coloured in here, so there's a sad lack in sub-Saharan Africa, although my last collaboration meeting was in Morocco, which was ace. Um, the, uh, everyone that's coloured in there has some relationship with CERN, ranging from members, which are blue. If you're wondering why there's a member in South America, that's because French Guyana is ESA, and it's definitely part of France. Um, the, apparently. Um, the rest of it is um, everyone has you know, either observer status or they send scientists there or whatever partner program they're involved in. So anyway, that, so CERN is a great place that, and that's why we managed to do this. And one of the nice things about this, this has been a l very long science story in, in the public um, arena. And uh, when we started up in 2008, we had John Denham um, turned up, the Minister of State for what was then Department of Universities Innovation and Science and then when we found the Higgs boson we had David Willits who is the Minister of Science now and, and actually there, there's a whole series of stories of political commitment to this on the back of the fact that essentially there was consent from the electorate across the whole uh, across the UK and in, in the end the whole of Europe and I think that's something everyone should be quite proud of at the end of the book I say they could you know it could have been the author list should have been a lot longer, really. It's, it's, our author list on our papers is about 3,000 people, which is a lot. But, but in fact, even that's an understatement when you think how many people actually lie behind the achievement. Okay, so we, we have that beam and we collide particles together, um, protons together mostly, um, at energies higher than anyone's ever um, collided them before. And when you do that, you need to build a piece of kit that will record those... Um, record what happens, record the images of those collisions as carefully as possible, give you as much information and allow you to interrogate it as carefully as possible offline. And this is the Atlas detector, which is one of um, two general-purpose detectors on that ring. The, the beams collide in four places. There are two detectors there um, which are more specialised, called LHCB and ALICE, which I won't discuss anymore. But the ones I'm going to show you some data from in the talk are Atlas, which is this one, and CMS, which is our rivals on the other side of the ring. So this, this is Atlas. Um, the, the beams come in here, and from the other side, they collide in the middle here. Um, it's fairly large. These are people, if you haven't spotted them. So it's, it's quite a big bit of kit. 
And in the book, I describe it as, a, as um, in a, an analogy which I'm still undecided about, as a, as a high-tech cylindrical onion. Um, in the, each layer, it's concentric layers in the cylinder of different technologies, which tell you which the particles, as they're produced in the collision, and they fly away from the collision point in the middle here, they, uh, each layer of technology tells you something different about what's going, what the particle is, what its energy is, what its direction is, etc. Okay. And there's not, the, the challenge is not just the, um, the uh, recording the data. There's also a huge challenge in actually, well, it's not just taking the data, it's recording it, reading it out, and then processing it. This is um, the, uh, one of our event display programs. Actually, this was a UCL and Birmingham and Nijmegen contribution to Atlas. If we'd have known it was going to appear in so many newspapers, we'd have worked a little harder on the graphical design, I think. <laughs> Nevertheless, <laughs> it was a kind of working event display. Um, we actually, it's, if you go to CERN, and if, you've ever, if you ever go skiing and you happen to be have an hour to two to kill at the airport, it's pretty close. Um, pop in and you can see the Atlas control room because we're the ones that are nearest CERN and nearest the airport. And you'll see this event, this, this event, pro, event display program running on the screens. It's actually used to, to monitor the detector. Um, what you're seeing here is, if you look at this, this segment of the, of the picture got to imagine a slice through that cylindrical onion imagine the beam coming in from from the projector direction another beam coming from behind the screen and they collide in the plane of the screen and you've got a slice through it there so all the little gray stuff is low energy particles you can tell the low energy particles because they're bending in the magnetic field that we have in there so that if, it, if the, the high energy particles don't bend so much same reason that the large hadron collider is so big because high energy particles don't bend very easily the yellow ones there are high energy. They're muons, in fact. You can tell they're muons because they come through here. If you're confused by the bits of technology layer in here, there's a chapter on each one of them in the book. So. <laughs> <laughs> um, and if you zoom in on this um, display, so this is the end-on projection with the beams coming in here again. And zoom in on that red dot in the middle there. That's what you've got here. You can begin to get an idea of what the, the data processing challenge is. So this, I, I'm rubbish at remembering numbers, but one I do remember is that the speed of light is about 30 centimeters per nanosecond. I can never remember what a nanosecond is. So. A nanosecond is, a, I think, it's, it's a billionth of a second. Right, thank you. So <laughs> 10 to the minus 9, right? So, of a second. So we have collisions every 50 nanoseconds. Okay, bunches of protons coming through every 50 nanoseconds. That was good. Every 50 nanoseconds. And, um, and in fact, when we turn on again in April, it'll be every 25 nanoseconds, which is what it was designed for. Now, if you remember the size of the detector, it's many meters. It's 50 meters long, basically. So there's no way, even traveling at the speed of light, but the, the particles can have got out of the detector. If you imagine a load of particles being produced, they can't get out of the detector before the next lot's coming, and then the next lot, and then the next lot. And never mind getting out of the detector. The detector's got to process the data, digitize it, send it down a load of cables to our computers, they've got to do something with it and decide whether we want to keep it or not, and then we've got to send it out around the world to the computing grid, of which the UK node is in Harwell, not so far from here. Um, so it's a massive data processing challenge, just in general, in all, all kinds of ways. Labelling it, making sure that you've time-stamped it so that the right event goes with the right bit of digit goes with the right event, and you've got the, you don't have data from one collision coming in with data from another collision making sure you save the events you want to save and don't save the ones you didn't want to save and that you haven't biased yourself by doing that is really hard. 
And it's even worse than 50 nanoseconds because every ellipse here is another proton-proton collision. So protons don't come one at a time, they come in bunches, and we get um, some, anywhere, between, anywhere between about 10 and about 100 proton-proton collisions in any one time bucket as well. So you also have to reconstruct that. So it's, it's pretty hard, and there's, there's a lot of... Um, well, it's, it's, I guess um, I'll come on to this in a minute, but there's many ways in which, as well as being the cutting edge of... of fundamental particle physics, this is the cutting edge of a bunch of other stuff, and one of them is data processing and, and, and passing this stuff around. So anyone here who doesn't know where the World Wide Web was invented? Excellent. Even less than the United fans. Brilliant. CERN, of course. Right? I had to tell you, just in case. Okay, so that I will get back to the science in a minute, but the, the um, I want to talk a little bit about why the Large Hadron Collider has been such a big deal in, in terms of uh, it was always going to be a big deal in terms of physics but it's also I'm, my mum knows the name of my experiment and okay I tell my mum but she never remembers but she remembers because she's seen it in the paper um, it, it's, that's kind of unusual for a physicist certainly it's unusual for most scientists it's, uh, astronomers sort of, it happens occasionally but, but, but with, with, in general it's, it's not a usual situation um, and it's um, we realised it was going to be a bit... We wanted to do this. We wanted to tell people what, what you've been spending your £90 million pounds a year on since 1954. Um, we were told by lots of people you shouldn't, actually. We said, keep quiet. The moment they find out what you're up to, they'll cancel it. Um, but we thought, we, we'd been told that so many times and they were gradually cancelling it anyway that we thought we might as well just tell people because we think most people will probably think it's OK. Um, so we were trying to do that, but we didn't know where it would go. And there was a lot of scepticism about whether it would work or not, and wh whether it was a good thing to do, and what, what is the status of public engagement uh, in science. At the moment I realised we were doing something kind of special was when I saw this picture. This is Atlas being built in 2005. It's full of stuff now. But, so, it, but it, it was while I was, Atlas was being built. This is one of the people who was building it. Um, and I saw this in the middle of FHM. And I thought, okay, we're reaching the... I don't buy FHM, someone bought it and showed me, right? But um, the, the, um, I thought, okay, this is reaching the parts physics doesn't necessarily always reach. Um, and uh, that, that, was, that was good. And it, generally, it generally was a very positive experience. In fact, we were, we were being essentially cut by, by the politicians at some point. It happens every now and then. It's not... A, not but, but um, they definitely told us, don't tell anyone what, anyone what you're doing because they'll go, well, that's that £90 million a year. That's, well, it's a third of UCL's annual turnover. It's a, it could be nearly a hospital. Um, and uh, it turns out that you know, the people in the whole, on the whole think that, thought that some kind of investment in this stuff was interesting. And it was, on the whole, a very positive experience. Although I remember... Um, in 2008, when we, start, when we turned on, the BBC turned up and made it a big bang day. Brian Cox, actually, was very instrumental in getting them out there, and he wasn't as famous as he is now. He was, he was, he had, they knew he would do a good job at it, but that was about it. And, and James Gillies, who, was the, who still is the head of communications at CERN, and Brian um, got the BBC and, got, and persuaded everyone at CERN to give them access, real free access to the, to the LHC control room on the day we turned the damn thing on. We didn't know whether it would work. And the amount of scepticism at CERN about, no, you must, well, let's just do it all and then give them, here's one we made earlier, you know. And they said, no, let's show them how it, <laughs> just bring them in and do it. And it was fantastic. It was an amazing day. Um, 
And it was a real lesson in how openness can really help. Um, but it's not all good. Um, this, is, this, this is just actually just before we turned on. This is a guy, um, this is Al Jazeera. This is um, me not being very happy. It's not the same shirt. I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> Damn it. No, it's not the same shirt. It's really <laughs> this is a guy I, 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 whose name I've forgotten. I called him Otto de Fruit Loop. Um, the, but he was, um, he, he still is maybe, um, a professor of theoretical biochemistry at the University of Tübingen. I doubt that he was in such an amazing situation there because I know that I was in a sensory deprivation tank under an industrial estate in Geneva, not in front of the lake. But I, I was on my way to the airport and I got asked about... They found Al Jazeera, I'd done some stuff for Al Jazeera in, in London and before and they found me up and said, hey, we need someone to come on a programme talk about the LHC startup. Can you come and do it, please? And I said, OK, I've got a couple of hours to kill. I'll come. So I went and did it. And, uh, okay, I'm not that casual. I thought, yeah, great, I'll do that. <laughs> live TV. Well, no, it wasn't live TV, but it was recorded. I thought, I'll do it anyway. So I went, and then I got there, and he said, thanks, put this thing in your ear and put me in this room. And I couldn't see anything. I just said, and he said, I'm really glad you could come in because the guy from CERN cancelled at the last minute. And I thought, bollocks. Why did, <laughs> why did the guy from CERN cancel at the last minute? And we said, you're, and you're, you're other um, person on here, well, Val Jamieson from New Scientist, which was fine. And, uh, and the interviewer was fine and then said we got Otto the Fruit Loop and I thought okay now I know why the guy from sitting cancelled at the last minute um, and it's quite nerve wracking to be honest because it wasn't live I mean actually live TV is less nerve wracking because they can't edit you to make you look like an idiot afterwards if you're an idiot fair enough but if, you, but if, they, if they can't you know you can't be twisted by the editor you, you, what goes out goes out and then it's done and it's kind of more relaxing but this was now I was in this room all I had was a light in my face I couldn't see anyone else and they were asking me these stupid questions and this guy was giving stupid answers he was convinced we were going to destroy the world by accident and on purpose so, so, I, I didn't really get that one but it's, it's like we were going to create black holes by accident and destroy the world and we were developing weapons it's like how stupid can you get um, but um, in the end it was actually I think the guy from CERN who cancelled made a mistake because again I think Al Jazeera reaches an audience that the BBC doesn't reach it's a very different audience there were genuine concerns about it I have to say the, guy, the editor and the interviewer did do a good job um, you can see that they kept well he was hang, banging on they kept coming to me sarcastically drinking water while he talked shit um, but the, the, uh, it, it, there was only in the end I think only one mad scientist on the programme and it certainly wasn't me um, so I was, and mad as annoyed maybe but not mad as mad um, and I think it went out very well it's actually quite highly viewed on Al Jazeera I think it probably was worth it and to me the lesson was there that being open and actually engaging is probably the best thing to do. You should have a predilection to doing that rather than cancelling because, okay, he's an idiot. Media balance, you know, all of science and a fruit loop. But, that's, <laughs> but sometimes it's worth doing and, and in general it's worth just engaging uh, at some level. I mean, I was lucky because I wasn't stitched up. I could have been stitched up, but there you go. Mostly you're not. We survived. <laughs> so, um, it got even more acute, this kind of openness thing, and actually the backlash from the scientists got quite serious, when nine days after turning it on in a blaze of glory, we blew the damn thing up. Um, <laughs> what happened was that we had superconducting magnets, there was uh, a resistance developed in one of the connectors between them, 
the because there's a resistance to huge current flowing through you get a lot of heat generated everything stops becoming superconducting very quickly and melts and that would have been fine that would have been well it would be very annoying and bad but then there was a spark went across punctured a helium vessel um there's uh lots of hel- liquid helium at under pressure in the vessels it became a gas very quickly which is a big exploit, big enough to pick a 40-ton magnet, rip it out of concrete bearings and throw it down the tunnel. So it's quite serious when you think this stuff is all aligned to within a few microns. Then you have something like that happening. To be honest, it was desperately disappointing. I had a bunch of PhD students starting that time. It was kind of October. We started in September, and then this happened um, nine days later. And uh, you know, I had to stand up and say, well, I'm really sorry. Uh, you thought you were going to get data in your first year. You're, it's going to be the middle of your second year before we even turn on. Sorry about that. It's two steps forward, one step back. But it felt like more than one step back, frankly. But we didn't go away. We had been all out there going, hey, this is so exciting when we turned on. And in fact, there were a lot of nervous physicists with, in front, in, in, on TV at that time. And they, we were actually nervous and excited because our experiment was turning on, not because we were on TV. And I think they, that, that had already registered with a lot of the media people, and it registered even more when this happened, because we didn't run away and go back into our shells. We came on TV being really disappointed. And, it was, you know, and they could also see why we'd been nervous. We were not, this was not some stage-managed piece of rubbish. This was real cutting-edge science and engineering, and sometimes that goes wrong, and it did go wrong. Um, no one was hurt, no one died, you know, and we fixed it, and it was all done within a certain budget. All that happened was the science came, but later. So, um, so again, to me, it was a lesson in openness, although we had, did have our wobbles. I mean, after, after you, as, you if, as I'm sure you'll all read in the book, it wasn't a great time. But, um, but it was, you know, in the end, it did reinforce the lesson that being open was good. And the final thing I'll say about that before I get back to the science is that... Um, yeah, the God particle, that's nothing to do with us. Um, the, that's, um, the, the, uh, the media scrutiny of doing an experiment where, where a journalist, if they get a bit of gossip from CERN about the Higgs, can actually get a load of hits on whatever, on Wired or whatever it is they're on, um, is, is really um, an unusual situation for a scientist to be in and not a comfortable one, I have to say, especially when you've got 3,000 collaborators, one of whom is bound to leak. And what indeed happened in, uh, around um, Easter 2011 was um, we got a mail on Atlas. We got a mail from senior scientists who shall remain nameless. Um, that they found a Higgs. Well, basically, they said they found a resonance in the two-photon um, mass distribution, which is what I'm going to show you later, um, which was basically consistent with the Higgs, and it was complete bullshit. It, you, could, you didn't need to read far beyond the abstract to realise that they completely lost their sense of judgement. They completely screwed up. So that would have been fine, except that they mailed it to 3,000 people. I mean, everyone screws up, that's fine. You know, but, but, but they mailed it to 3,000 people, and therefore, of course, it hit a blog, and, and the media were all watching, and therefore, what do you do? So I had a blog at this time, and I just ignored it. I said, "This is not nothing to do. This is not real science. This is not real data." Um, and then I got phoned up by Channel Four and said, "We're going to do this on the news. Do you want to come and talk about it?" And I follow in the kind of "Let's be open, let's engage." I did that anyway. So it's Krishna and Guru Murphy. I'd say Krishna and Guru Murphy is excellent. It was a couple of times I went on there. You know, they they often say the Higgs boson. They often do the boson 
with the, you know, kind of the navy guy instead of boson. On his auto cue, it said the Higgs bosom. <laughs> <laughs> and he just, I, I thought, he's going to get to that. What's he going to do? And he just, and he said the Higgs boson and just carried on. So I'm sure afterwards he went to the camera guys and you guys. <laughs> anyway, we had like, um, it was, it, again, it, I, I think the thing, the point is, we had, like, t- I don't know how long I was on there, but it seemed a long time. But we had the beginning of it, being a third of it was basically how, ex- how exciting it is at CERN and therefore it's no surprise that some people are behaving like fuckwits, which they were. And, uh, and I don't blame the media for getting excited because it's exciting, but this is what's really going on. And, and it was just, again, a, an entirely positive experience, to be honest. To, it was a chance to tell people science was exciting. Scientists are also complete fuckwits sometimes. And, and you know, there really is really good stuff coming, so keep watching. So I think I, I learned throughout this to, to trust people a lot more. I was actually very cynical about journalists before. I, I still am at some level, but, but um, I mean, I'm not saying they're all lovely. But, but the, um, there, there are people out there who really want to tell the story that's really happening. And if you engage with them properly, you can get somewhere. And it's better than just hiding and, and ignoring them on the whole. Right, back to the science. Um, I said that we need a big... Um, a big uh, tunnel to get to high energy. I didn't really say why we wanted to go to high energy. So there, there are three reasons why you want to do physics at high energies. I'm just going to go through them. I, my favorite one is the last one. But the, the first one is really easy. Um, if there's a new particle, it's okay to have equations in the pub. Um, the, 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 first, the, the first one is that if there's a new particle out there with a mass M, then you, and uh, you want to make one or two probably, then you need energy at least um, E equals mc squared, uh, where c is the speed of light, which is a big number, 30 centimetres per nanosecond. Um, Three times 10 to the 8 metres per second. So you need a lot of energy to make new particles. Fine. We also get called the Big Bang Machine very often, and uh, I don't really like that, um, studying the physics of the early universe, because it makes us sound like historians, which is never a good thing. Um, no, historians in, sorry. <laughs> I have some, some of my best friends are historians. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> actually, I used to say, that, have you read Neil Stevenson's um, Baroque trilogy? It's the only book that's ever been recommended to me by an electronic engineer and a historian. It's just fantastic. Anyway, I recommend it. After you've read my book, obviously. Um, th- th- anyway, the universe now is, is expanding, and it's low temperature. It's 2.7 Kelvin, cosmic microwave background. That's the temperature of outer space. And, um, and it's actually, its expansion is accelerating for reasons unknown. Um, but it doesn't take a genius to work out, therefore, that in the past it was probably smaller. And since energy is conserved under some definition, that means the energy density was... was um, higher, which means the temperature was higher, which means all the particles were moving faster, which means all the particles were colliding with each other with really, really high energies, which means at some level they'll reach the energy that we collide in a few of them at at the LHC. So in a sense, we're we're not creating the conditions of the Big Bang because it's not in equilibrium or anything. Mind you, the Big Bang probably wasn't in equilibrium most of the time, but we're, we're giving a few lucky quarks and gluons the collision energies that everything had in the, in the first few moments of the early universe. So in that sense, yes, we are learning about the physics that was kind of ubiquitous in the early universe. But my favourite um, 
reason for what we're doing is that we're, my way of explaining what we're doing is that what we're doing is looking at the universe more closely than ever anyone ever has done before. And to do that, you need a lot of energy. And this, this is from my mate Herbie, who's in the book. Um, <laughs> sorry, I'll stop. Um, the, the, uh, this is a, a physics show he does with a bunch of students from Bond University. It's really good, and I'll probably be back next year. This is a, a water tank, a ripple tank. And you see there's a bunch of waves going there. Someone in a minute is going to drop a suspicious-looking blob into it. And when they do, you will see that you notice on this side of the screen that the blob is there. <laughs> it's got to come in there. There you go. Right. So that blob is messing up the waves. And you could, if you were using those waves to look for blobs, you would find it, right? Because there's a, a gap here. Now, they're going to take it away again and put another blob in. It's a smaller blob. I don't know what these blobs are. I'd love to know. But um, Now you see there's no way of telling that blob's there, actually, by looking at this screen over here. Because, and the reason is that the size of the blob is shorter than the wave, smaller than the wavelength of the waves that you're trying to look at it with. Okay? So if you want to look at it, that blob, you need to put more energy in and have higher frequency waves, and then you can start seeing it. Now you see there's a dead zone. Uh, the waves have got shorter. So that's, in essence, what we're doing. Um, in quantum mechanics, basically... Short wavelength means high energy, just as it does with a, a wave, a tank, a water tank. And we're looking not just inside the atomic nucleus, the, the atom. We're not. We're looking inside the nucleus. We're not even looking just inside the nucleus. We're looking inside protons and neutrons. In fact, we're possibly even looking inside quarks. Now, as far as we know, quarks and electrons are um, fundamental. But all fundamental means is we haven't managed to break them yet. It's like no matter how, energy, how high energy the wave is, we haven't managed to see anything inside them. We haven't managed to smash them up. So we, we might do. I mean, when we turn on again at higher energy, we might suddenly find that all this is nonsense and quarks are actually made of something else. But in the, uh, for now, they're fundamental in the standard model of particle physics. Quarks and electrons are fundamental. And uh, the reason we call them fundamental is no matter how short wavelength the wave, no matter how high energy we probe them with, all we see is a, a point. We don't see anything inside them. Right. I want to... I'm going to show you the Higgs data. Uh, there's two things I need to explain to, to, uh, to, so that you will understand the import of the Higgs data. One of them is why... I'm going to show you a bump in the end in a plot, and I need to, you need to understand why a bump in a plot is important. So we use Feynman diagrams to, to describe physics. Um, this is our best theory. We may have another best theory at some point, but this is our current best theory. So this is an electron and a positron annihilating, which is actually what we were doing in the colliding ring before um, we put the Large Hadron Collider in there, in the same tunnel, in fact. So we do recycle. Um, <laughs> the there's lots of energy. So they, they annihilate here, they turn into a photon, and then it decays, and they go to an electron-positron again. And this happens. Okay? Now, there's a big problem with this, which is embodied in this equation here. And with loads of energy here, energy is conserved, and we've loads of energy here. Same amount of energy. Same loads. So in the middle, there must be loads of energy too. But um, a photon has no mass. So there's a big problem with this equation because you've got... The energy has to be non-zero, but this is zero. A big though c squared is, it's not big enough to... It's not infinity, you know, it can't get rid of a zero. So what goes on in all this? Now, what goes on is that um, in quantum field theory, 
the photon doesn't have a fixed mass. It doesn't, so if it propagates and lives for a long time, if it comes in, no particle, in fact, has a fixed mass. Every particle can have the wrong mass as long as it doesn't do it for, wrong, for, for long. Now, you can think of that, if it makes you happy, as being Heisenberg's uncertainty principle, although, in fact, you derive Heisenberg's uncertainty principle from the quantum field theory. It's the other way around. But it is that that's going on. So there's a book by my famous um, northern compatriot, superstar overlord physicist, Brian, actually both of them, Brian and Jeff, <laughs> that called anything that can happen will happen in quantum mechanics. It's true, right? It's just a lot less likely to happen if it, if it, doesn't, um, if it doesn't map onto what we call a real system. It's not observable in the end. So real observable photons have zero mass. Right? If they propagate for a long time, they have zero mass, um, as far as we know as far as we can measure. But um, these guys in the middle of these diagrams are essentially a tool for the calculation. You're never actually going to measure them. They're just a mathematical entity that sits in the middle. Now, I say they're just a mathematical entity. You know, some physicists would claim that we all are. Um, but the, uh, the point is that they do have real physical manifestations, even though they're a tool for calculating this, this process. So if this photon could have mass zero, the probability of this happening would be much higher. And the more you move it away from zero, the less likely this scattering is to happen. So you might think, what a bunch of idiots. Why did they collide at really high energy where this is very unlikely to happen? And the reason is because of this guy. There's a Z boson can also appear in there. Now, the Z boson, the photon carries electromagnetic force. The Z boson carries the weak nuclear force. And the Z boson has mass. It has a mass of 90 giga electron volts over C squared, which is about 90 times the mass of the proton, actually. So... Um, if you collide these particles at 90 GeV, then you can make a Z boson and it will have its right mass and the probability will be really high. Okay. So now given that what I've just told you, you can actually understand one of the most important plots in physics, which is this one. So what you have along here is the mass or the, or the energy, they're equivalent, there's only a factor of C squared between them of the collision. So this is the, ma this is the mass of the, of the wiggly line in the middle of that diagram I just showed you, okay? And, you can, and up this axis is the probability of the thing happening, the number of events we recorded. The, the dots on here are data. This is not theoretical magic. This is just stuff we record. So this is a log scale. You can see that near zero, where the photon will be pretty close to its real mass of zero, the probability is really high. And as you move up and up and up, the probability drops like crazy. And then as you get near 90 GeV, where the Z boson lives, then you suddenly get a peak. And that peak is discovering a particle. Now, we didn't discover it at LET. We, we knew it was there, and we built that collider to measure it really precisely. But that, that's how you discover a particle. You, you, you have the calculations of all the different Feynman diagrams, and if there's one, one particle in the middle of all that that suddenly can have the right mass, you'll get a peak in the probability of a thing happening. Okay. So I'm going to show you that. When, that. Now when I show you a bump and I say, that's the Higgs, you know why. So, so we can also do that at the LHC. This is um, 90 GeV. That's the Z boson. We're actually colliding quarks and anti-quarks there rather than electrons and positrons, but it's the same deal. Um, and you can see that we can reach a much higher energy. And you can see that the theorists are always thinking up new particles that we might see, and we haven't seen any of those yet, but we're always looking. Okay, so that's one thing you need to understand the, um, the, the data I'm going to show you about the Higgs. The, what, 
this is about is about why that is important, why the Higgs is important, what's the role it plays, why is it such a big? It's just another particle. What's the big deal? So I talked about fundamental particles not being made of anything else. That's actually more of a problem than it might seem, right? Okay, it may be seeming a big problem, actually. It's kind of weird having particles that are just point-like. What are they? Um, actually, Richard Feynman spent most of his um, final last decade of his life trying to work out how to calculate the mass of an electron rather than having it be a point-like particle. Actually, you know, it's, he was never happy with the, with the renormalization that he introduced in order to explain it. So... It is actually a really big problem because um, the, the, the whole of our understanding of fundamental particles and forces, I'm just going to have to use analogies here, but there's more in the book. Um, the, the, um, the symmetry, we, it turns out that in order to make sense of that conundrum, that how can something that has no, there's no size and no substance, not, no structure... How can it have mass? Is is actually not a trivial problem, and the only way you can make it happen is you have certain symmetries in the theory that that make everything work. Um, that that so all the all the forces that we have are based on on what we call gauge symmetries, which are explained in the book as well as I can possibly do it, and um, they without equations on the whole. Um, but it's a really important concept within physics that this happens. Now the problem is as soon as you introduce masses you actually destroy all those gauge symmetries. You break all those symmetries. So you've got to have some... So the, the people were struggling, even in the 60s, even before we had the standard model, even before we knew about quarks, we're going, how can particles that have no substructure, how can they have mass, kind of thing? Um, Peter Higgs and Francois Engler and Robert Brout were worrying about this and others then. And they came up with a solution, which is hiding the symmetry. So having the symmetry in a theory, but not having it there in everyday life. And you might think that's a very weird thing to do, but it actually, this is the point of this diagram is that it actually happens. So if you imagine Maxwell's equations, theory of electromagnetism, don't imagine Maxwell's equations, it's okay, you'll get them wrong. But the, the, um, just, just think about electromagnetism. It has no favored direction. There's no, it's completely spherically symmetric. It doesn't matter what direction you look in, it's the same physics, Okay. That's pretty basic underlying symmetry of actually the whole universe as far as we know. So imagine a, a magnet. Um, you can do, I've done this live with neodymium at the Royal Institution. It works. Imagine a magnet that's hot and it's all jiggling around and it's, it's full of little dipoles, but there, there's no symmetry there at all. I mean, sorry, there's loads of symmetry there. There's no pre- preferred direction. Everything's jiggling around. And then you cool it down. So you start with a theory that's completely spherically symmetric, but then you just cool it down. All you do is take energy out. You spread the energy out, if you like, which, remember, is what happens in the universe. It started off very symmetric, and you spread the energy out. As you spread the energy out and, and cool the thing down, the, um, these guys, there's, there's a slight preference, slight attraction for them to lie par- parallel to each other in one way or another. It doesn't matter what direction, as long as they're parallel, that's all. So the first two that lie in parallel, if, they're, if it's still hot, they'll immediately get knocked out of alignment again. It doesn't make any difference. But if, if it's cooling down, then two get parallel, the third will line up with them as well because that's cool. And then the next will line up. And you suddenly get a domain form, you get a magnet, you get a north pole, a south pole. You've completely broken the symmetry. So you started with a completely symmetric theory and all you've done is cooled it down and you've ended up with something that the symmetry's broken. There's now a north pole and a south pole. Now, that is an analogy, but it's a very close analogy. In fact, it's an analogy that's inspired Peter Higgs to, to write down the model in the first place. It came out of condensed matter physics. 
that um, you can do that. Now, you have to do all kinds of cool tricks with it and make it a Lorentzian variant and do everything else to it, but it, it does actually work. And uh, what you've got then is you say, well, if that's true, there's a magnetic field now in the whole universe. If this is my analogy for the whole universe, there's an analogy of a magnetic field in the whole universe. Now, it's not a magnetic field, but, it, but there is a field in the whole universe, and it's, cut, it's the Brout-Englert-Higgs field. So you just invent a whole field, fill the whole universe with it to get your maths right. It sounds a bit radical. Um, <laughs> it's been done before. The luminiferous ether was pretty much that and was wrong. So um, Peter Higgs, was, the reason his name's on the boson was he was the one guy who wrote down in his paper and said, and by the way, if that feels there, if you bang one of these guys, you'll get a ripple. You'll get a little wave. So if you just start, imagine displacing it, and it'll pull this one. You'll get a wave go through. In, in a magnet, that happens. It's a phonon. It travels through the magnet. It's a sound wave, basically, through the magnet. And that also will happen in the universe if you hit it hard enough. And that will be the evidence that you make a ripple in this background field of the universe. That will be the evidence that this model is right. So I had a really good talk, a question at the end of one of these talks in Edinburgh at Science Festival a while ago. I'd love to meet... One day I'll meet the person who who asked me this question and said, if the Higgs boson is everywhere and fills the whole universe and gives everything mass, why is it so hard to find? And the reason is that, well, okay, if it fills the whole universe, then it, you can't take a bit of the universe where it isn't and compare them to see whether it's there or not. So all you can do is whack it really hard and make a ripple in it. And to do that, you do have to whack it really hard. You need something like the Large Hadron Collider to hit it that hard and make one of these ripples. Those ripples are the Higgs boson. That's what it is. And that's what we've been doing. And those ripples are a particle in those Feynman diagrams. So if that ripple has the right mass, because the Higgs boson does have a mass, then you will see it. So these are the kind of events we look at. These yellow blobs are photons, which could have come from a Higgs boson being there and then decaying. You can put the energy and momentum back together and see what the mass would have been. And then you can plot it on the kind of plot that I showed you before. This is two years of my life going. Look at the date up there. Collecting, this is a number of photon pairs here. The mass of the wiggly line in the middle of the diagram here. Look for a bump. There is a bump there now. And there it is, 125 GeV. I'm going to show you again because you might not believe it. <laughs> I'm going to show you again. Now, remember, there was a, a fuss about 114 GeV. There was a little bump there. Uh, this is while the rumours are going on and everyone's scrutinising us. Look how much the plots are moving as we collect more and more data. It's just a nightmare. Right? The rumours, everyone's getting excited. You have to just watch yourself all the time. But in the end, that was robust. It was there. And, and I will say that on the day we declared a discovery and we went above Five Sigma, which was our, our um, preset criteria for calling it a discovery... I was in Westminster with David Willits and a bunch of other people having watched our experiment practice talk the night before in CERN. And me and Jim Verdi from Imperial were, were going to be on stage talking about it to the press and everything. And it turned out we were on the Today program and stuff as well. And uh, we, we, didn't, we hadn't seen each other's results. The Atlas results that I'd seen, the ones I just showed you before, came in the night before. I saw the final results at kind of 5 o'clock that evening and then got on the plane. And um, and so we got there early, like 5.30 in the morning. We showed each other sneakily each other's data because we weren't allowed to do that. And it was such a relief. 
to see that they had this. This is why you have independent experiments. I was, no matter how many checks you do of your own experiment, you don't believe it until someone else does it as well. And it was just, it was really important to see that they, they reproduced and confirmed our data. Of course, they thought we'd reproduced and confirmed theirs, but there we go. It was really important. I mean, it's just completely different detector technology, completely different bunch of people, completely different set of politics. It was just all, all worked. Plus, we also, there are other ways. So these are four leptons, the electron, positron, muon, mu plus, mu minus. You can add their masses up and do the same thing and, and collect the data. They go in there as well. The red stuff is the background. It has some weird shit. There's a lot less of it than there was before. These events are much rarer. But there's some weird shapes which are all understood. In fact, this is the Z bump that I showed you before, 90 GV. But um, you can see a bit that isn't really well understood uh, unless you put a Higgs boson in. And more importantly, when you zoom in on that, which you will in a second, you put a Higgs in there, you see it's 125 GV-ish, which is where the bump was in the previous plot, but it's a completely different measurement. So, and, and CMS arrivals also had the same thing. And they were kind enough to put what the Higgs would look like at 126 GV. We don't know its mass to within about a GV, but it's something around there. Um, we'll measure that more carefully when we get back again with more data. But you can see that... The, just imagine watching this and thinking, is this real? Is this a fluctuation? It's just fascinating what, watching knowledge emerge from, from lack of knowledge. It's just amazing. It's just brilliant. Anyway, that, so that was them. And, and we fought basically four independent measurements is why we two from each experiment. If you do the, rather than looking for bumps by eye, you can do the stats on it and the probability of it being wrong, of it being a random background fluctuation is now at 10 to minus 13, just for Atlas. So you can square that for Atlas and CMS. Peter Higgs was there for the, um, for the announcement and they asked him, <laughs> It's not what you expected, is it, after that plot? <laughs> they asked him, what did you do um, to celebrate? He said, well, I had to get back on the plane. He's a very retiring guy, Peter. And he said, I had to get back on the plane. But he's a real ale man. He said, and all they had was London Pride, so I had a couple of those. So when they opened the, the uh, Collider exhibit at the Science Museum, um, I was there celebrating. Everyone, Peter was, Higgs was there, Stephen Hawking was there, George Osborne was there. Um, and uh, we were all celebrating this stuff I didn't talk to George Osborne but they, 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 they all, we're all celebrating this stuff I would have done if he'd have said hello to me but he didn't um, they, they, and um, I was drinking there with a mate of mine and saying isn't this great and then at some point one of us just looked at the bottle and went hang on a minute <laughs> so, so Fuller's um, donated uh, 5,000 bottles I think of, of special brew special, it was basically normal London Pride with a special label it was really nice anyway you don't get that very often so it's been a, an amazing ride as a physicist to do this I didn't know that was what I signed up for I hope we've explained I hope we used the opportunity I think actually I think we've explained what we do because it's bloody brilliant but I hope we've also used the opportunity to explain a little more about how science works. One of the great privileges that we've, that we've had is that we were not a sudden story where, where you get your paper out in nature and, and someone pokes, a, you know, John Humphreys puts a, a microphone in your face, or one of his flunkies does, and, um, and you have your five minutes, you go, Eureka, and there's no build-up, and there's no follow-up, there's no what happened next, there's no nothing. We were really lucky, and it was such a big story that the build-up was huge. We went through all kinds of ups and downs. People followed it. And, and while it was a bigger scale than most science, I think it actually is the way most science works, to be honest. And I think, uh, I, I hope that we, we did, did 
do some good other than just um, getting people about exci- excited about fundamental physics. Although, even if that's all we did, it was worthwhile. Um, and that's really what the book's about. Thank you.